The following is a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people. It's great to be together this morning uh, and open the word together. Uh, I kind of had this date circled for quite some time as the last Sunday that we would be here and not totally sure where we'd be in this series. I didn't want to you know, start a series last week and then go away and leave someone hanging. But So I wanted to consider you know, what, what could I say? What, would God, what does God want to say through me? That's all, that's all the preacher does, right, is what does God want to say? And so the question has been kind of dominating my prayers of what were the last words uh, that we can share together this morning. So if we take this morning's sermon in that context of uh, the lack of some last words, if you will, I hope that uh, by me choosing this text and dwelling on really ultimately only four words this morning, uh, that you'll see that this is, this is important. We've talked about priority of words a lot through the last handful of weeks. And so I, I really think that this is maybe the most important encouragement <clears throat> that I could give uh, to conclude our time, my time here at Renfrew. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 22? It'll be on the screen behind me as well. But again, there's, there's something about reading the Word in our own Bibles where we can circle things that maybe jump out at us and we can then revisit what God has spoken to us through the Bible by being able to go back and see the notes we've taken. Matthew chapter 22 is where we'll land for most of our time this morning. And so I'll read verses 34 through 40. Matthew writes these things. When the Pharisees had heard that he, that Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him, to test Jesus. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Let me pray and then we'll dive in here. Father God, we thank you again for this time that we can be together and worship. This time that we can make much of you. And so God, as we, we dive into these verses, as we dive into your word, God, I pray that you would speak. God, I pray that this, this day, this time would not be about anything else than making your name great. So as we, we spend time in some familiar passages, God, I, I pray that, that, Holy Spirit, you would move, that you would give us fresh insight, a fresh desire to hear, to know these things, uh, and let us walk away with a, a, a renewed, renewed sense of love and purpose and, and desire to, to chase after you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll get to Jesus' words because they're the most important ones. But as always, we need to look a little bit at the context of our text and dig into the background just a little bit to see where this is coming from. Because we want to be true to the text. We don't want to just cherry-pick verses out and, and say, well, I think it's saying here this. But if we actually look two verses earlier, maybe that verse is saying something completely different. Completely different. So if we flip back a little bit earlier in Matthew, and even the last two chapters, so Matthew 21 and 22, what we see is that the religious people of the day have been kind of relentless in their attack on Jesus. 
In 21 verses uh, 23 through 27, the chief priests and the elders of the people go after Jesus' own self-imposed authority. Jesus has been talking about the authority he has to be preaching and, and ministering in these ways, and they attack that. Then a little bit later, in chapter 22, starting at verse 15 or so, the Pharisees and the Herodians seek to squeeze Jesus with their question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then finally, just before our passage today, the Sadducees come in and roar about the resurrection, which they don't actually believe in anyways, but they're testing Jesus on this for whatever reason. And so they're trying to, you know, trap Jesus in this question of what happens with a woman with her seven husbands as they get to heaven or whatever else. So these are not like, oh, I have some legitimate questions, Jesus. Please help. These are is a relentless attack from the church people. Pause for effect. The church people attacking what Jesus is teaching. And so I'll probably say this a few times today, but... Church people, are we following Jesus and what he's teaching? Or are we really happy with the way we interpret the prophets and the law and the way we do things in our traditions and whatever else? Maybe that's, that's the bonus third highlight of the day. We're, we'll come back to that. So we've got these attacks, and then we come to our text today. Matthew twenty two thirty four and 35. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, you know, round three is done, They came together, and one of them, an expert of the law, asked a question to test Jesus. So we see one more challenge here. We see this this expert in the law, or a lawyer, depending on your translation. And so this was someone who was an expert in the Old Testament, specifically in the first five books of of the Old Testament, the Torah, the law, the Jewish law, but also not just an expert in those written words, But also in its oral interpretation, it was an oral culture. Things were passed down by speaking and telling stories. And also an expert in its application. Which ultimately, and we'll see again more than once today, that that this group of people had turned ten commandments from Exodus into 613 commandments. That's a lot of work. So here we have this religious lawyer, a Pharisee, one of the scribes, Mark tells us in this story. Mark's gospel tells us. And so as we read these verses, we can see once again, this is not just friendly chatter of Jesus, help me understand. But rather someone who is trying to trap Jesus into something so that they can have him killed. Because their traditions, the way they are doing church, is really being threatened by Jesus. And they do not like that one bit. The words we see, they gather together, we see in verse 34, is quoting Psalm 2, verse 2, if you can flip there super quick. We see Psalm 2 says, The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. The rulers, the church people, take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. It's a prophetic psalm pointing that this will happen to God and his anointed one, his Messiah. They are here to test Jesus. And his question in verse 36, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Now with this question, again, the lawyer is not asking, Hey, Jesus, which laws from the scriptures do we have to obey and which ones can we ignore and still be all right? 
But rather, he's asking this. He says, Jesus, in your opinion, what is the fundamental premise of the law on which all the individual commands depend? He's asking, of the 613 commands that we've put together, the rabbinic tradition, the the Jewish rabbis have pulled together, of the 248 positive commands and the 365 prohibitive commands, which command gets to the heart of them all? Which one are you going to tell us isn't good enough so that we can arrest you? And look at how Jesus responds. Verse 37 through 40. Again, these are probably familiar verses, but Jesus said to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So it's in this Jewish rabbinic tradition that Jesus is speaking. Again, remember that the context of Matthew is a very Jewish-centered context. Matthew's writing to Jews. So it's in this Jewish history rabbinic tradition that Jesus is being asked and answering this question. And he says, as he answers, he quotes from the Torah. He's asked about the law, so he quotes from the law. First, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then he jumps ahead a little bit and quotes from Leviticus chapter 19, which says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I think commentator Douglas O'Donnell helps us here a lot. He says this, Here Jesus provides an interesting and helpful image. He has us envision both the law and the prophets. So the Old Testament he's using to answer the question is bigger than the Old Testament that he's being questioned about. Because remember, which of the laws? So he's giving us a... Uh, he's Again, back to the quote. He has us envision both the law and the prophets with its commandments and covenants, prophecies and promises, types and testimonies, invitations and exhortations. And he says they're all hanging on these things. If we look at the Young's literal translation of the Bible, it's the, this phrase is, is rendered on these, on these two commands. All the law and the prophets do hang. On these two love command hooks, one scholar summarizes the image as this. He says, the picture then is of two pegs in a wall at equal height on which these two commands hang. O'Donnell continues and says that this image is interesting and unique because the Jews of Jesus' day would have viewed their Bibles as hundreds of pegs from which hundreds of individual commands were hanging down. And all of these commands would have been hanging down from similar or equal lengths. So what Jesus has done is he's taken a pegboard, picture, I don't know, maybe a workshop or a, you know, a play kitchen or something, you've got the pegboard and all your tools hanging on it. So Jesus has taken this image of hundreds of pegs with hundreds of commands, all equal, and cut every single string. Pulled out every single peg except two. And the whole Bible, he stuck on those two pegs. And these things are so close together. He ties them together so tightly that they can rightly be called the double love command. Two separate pegs united by love, nailed in and pushed into the wall. Two commands hanging from those pegs. 
ultimately we see, again, two things here. So we'll deal with the two commands separately and then pull them back together. The first is, again, what we find in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5, which we read, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, verse 4, Deuteronomy 6, 4, is known as the Shema. It's the oral creed of the Jewish people. So these would have been essential words. This is the heart, this is the heart of the Jewish tradition, the Jewish belief system. Any service in the synagogue would have started and probably ended with these words. They would have recited them and spoken them so that we all have... This is, this is our foundational point. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Pious Jews in those days would have taken those words and, and tied them to their heads and tied them to their wrists while they prayed. And in every godly household, the morning and evening, you would start and finish with these words every single day of the year. Now, verse 4, we see that there is no explicit command. The Shema, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's no command there. But it is an extremely distinctive and explicit statement of monotheism, that there is one God. So then we move into verse 5, and we see the application of there only being one God. And this is what Jesus quotes in verse 37, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength is what we find in Deuteronomy. O'Donnell, one more time. So he says to Jesus, what mattered most was not the hundreds of various laws and their relative rankings, but what mattered most to Jesus and what should matter most to us was a loving relationship with the one true God, a love for Yahweh, not for Baal, not for Allah, not for Vishnu, but a loving relationship, and one that, that requires the whole person. Deuteronomy read the whole heart, soul, and might, or strength. Or as Jesus kind of subtly translated it, as mind. A whole heart, soul, and mind. And O'Donnell says this, Perhaps he substituted mind for might, as Jesus quoted this to the, to the lawyer. Maybe he did this as a subtle rebuke to their, to their riddles that they were testing him with. In a sense, he was maybe saying, use your heads instead of just your logical strength. But more likely, he says, heart, soul, and mind are simply overlapping categories, representing every faculty and capacity that we have. So he's saying, love God with everything that you are. That's the mention here of heart and soul and mind. It was not intended to give us sort of a psychological breakdown of the various components of our human personality. You know, maybe the heart being the hub and wheel of our thoughts and words and deeds and, and our soul representing the seat of our emotional activity and the mind being the center of our intellectual life. But rather, these three parts were intended to give us a comprehensive picture of what is to be our total devotion. Love the Lord your God with everything. The essential thing here, and we keep, we keep beating this drum, the key to this and why we are in this text today is the alls. The question, the follow-up question, how much of our heart, soul, and mind are we to love God with? All of it. We simply cannot respond to God's wholehearted love for us with anything half-hearted in return. 
One commentator that I read writes this. He says, this demand is one for total allegiance. One should love God with every globule of one's being. And I had to use that quote because I really wanted to say globule. It should be everything. If we skip ahead a bit in our Bibles to Mark chapter 12, we can see a picture of what this looks like. Look at Mark 12, 41 to 44 with me. Mark writes these words. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he, this is Jesus, watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. But then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples to him, he said, hey, look at this. Truly, I tell you, that poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they gave out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live in. This woman is an example of what our inner and outer devotion should be. We should not see what's left at the end of the month to maybe give to God and and support his cause. But rather, we need to, as we... We try to pray every single week. We need to remember that God gives us everything. God gave us everything. Jesus gave up everything for us. And so the only appropriate response is to offer everything back. Loving God isn't easy, but it's not impossible. Because all things are impossible with God. So according to Jesus, the most important thing we can do in life is this, to love God with total devotion. But the follow-up question I suppose we could ask, and we should ask when you know, we're being told something like give up everything, is why? And why should we do this? Now, at the risk of sounding trite or maybe a little condescending, let's look at uh, 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. Maybe overly simplistic answer, but I don't think we need to add anything more to that. John Piper says this. He says that the gospel call, which is that Christ died for sinners, and if we believe on him, we will be saved. The gospel call is not a call, uh, is a call not first to believe that he died for your sins, but that because he is the kind of God who redeems at such cost and with such wisdom and holiness, that he is worthy of trust, and that he is a truly satisfying repose for all of my longings. That's what the gospel tells us, that, that God is worth it. Piper continues, he says, or it may mean that in beholding and spiritually apprehending God to be the kind of God who loves sinners like us with such amazingly free grace through such stunningly wise and sacrificial means of atonement, Christ on the cross, that we are drawn out to delight in this God for who he is in himself. Rather than taking the sentence to mean that that we love him first because we find ourselves personally and particularly chosen by him, we love him because he has done it all for us. So my first, last word to you this morning is love God. There's two words, but they fit together. Love God. I know that we will not do this perfectly. We will get distracted. We will get drawn away. Our own kingdoms will rise up in us and call for attention. But when you do those things, come back. God is good and his love endures forever. And he is worth submitting 
all of your life to. The second part of Jesus' answer to the question flows out of the first quite naturally. Like the shape of a cross, he starts with the vertical dimension, love the Lord your God, and then he connects it with the horizontal, horizontal dimension, the command to love others. Verse 39, 20, Matthew 29, 39. The second command, Jesus says, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, or love people. O'Donnell again says this. He says, on one hand, Jesus' answer to the scribe's question is unoriginal. See, all, really, all he's doing is quoting two well-known Old Testament texts. Yet, on the other hand, what he's done here is quite original. For you see, the, common, the combination of these two commands is common to us. Love God, love people. But it wasn't to them. This combination would have been revolutionary to them. James Edwards writes this. He said, Although the love of God and love of humanity were occasionally affirmed separately in Israel, there is no evidence that before Jesus they were ever combined. He says, it does not appear that any rabbi, any Jewish teacher, before Jesus regarded the love of God and neighbor as center and sum of the law. And so while Jesus' answer was based on two well-known and often cited texts from the Torah, from the law, he is the first in history that we can see to affirm that the love for God and love for people are indivisible. You cannot do one without the other. He was the first to say that the Shema was something that must be complemented and must be completed by a love for one's neighbor. And so there's a distinction between the two commandments, love God and love people, but there is not a division. The first command is greater than the second, and yet the first cannot be met unless the second is accomplished, and vice versa. The second may be greater in some sense than the first, but it cannot be accomplished unless you do the first. Love God and love people. If we jump into Luke's gospel, Luke's account of this same story of the lawyer asking Jesus, what's the most important command? We see that the lawyer asks Jesus a follow-up question. Again, this is, could be a familiar text to us, but we're going to read it anyways. And Jesus answers that question with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Look, if you will, with me at Luke 10, verse 30 through 37. So Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. The robbers stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. Now a priest happened to be going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, this man that had been beaten up and left for dead, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. And he went over to him, and he bandaged his wounds, and he poured on olive oil and wine. And then he put him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, two days' wage, and gave it to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra costs you have. So Jesus asked, Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The man who showed him mercy, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. I bring this story into our discussion this morning because we need to take a look at the three characters coming down the road and then compare them with our own faith journeys. See, the first two, the priest and the Levite, 
They would have been well-respected Jewish people. They would have been church people, as it were. But now often when we talk about this parable, we focus on the Samaritan as the unlikely hero. And we should do that, because he is. However, this morning, let me also suggest that perhaps the priest and the Levite didn't just pass by the injured man because of their callous indifference, but rather they didn't stop to help because they were too busy loving God to love this person, to love their neighbor, to love people. I suggest that it's not to... Not a stretch to say that these two men, the priest and the Levite, they could have been, they were likely maybe on their way to the synagogue when the story takes place, and, and they didn't want to take the time to assist. You know, church starts at 10.30. We've got to be there at 10.30, right? This is the story, so I'll take some creative license to a parable. But, it, but in the life of a priest or a Levite, it's a safe assumption. So follow with me here. Also, without question, had they stopped to help someone who was left for dead, bleeding, bruised, and broken, they would themselves have become ritually unclean, which would have then made them unfit to serve in the synagogue or in the temple. So to avoid being unable to do church things, they did not help this person. And so ultimately they chose their legalism. They chose to love God over loving people. So again... We say we, we cannot love people if we do not understand God's love for us. And we just finished saying that Jesus made love God and love people indivisible and, and that they complement and complete one another. And so ultimately we can also say that if we are not loving people, and I would say of just avoiding people because we're upset with them, that's not loving either. But if we are not loving people, we are not showing God's love, maybe we don't know God's love. Look at 1 John 2 as well with me. 1 John 2, I'll read verses 7 through 11. John writes these words to the church. He says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word that you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, the one who says, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm loving God, the one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in darkness because he doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We cannot know God's love if we are unwilling to show God's love. And if we do not recognize our own position of needing God's love, and we do not recognize that we cannot make ourselves right with God, it's only because of the cross, it's only because of Jesus, that we can offer up our prayers, that we can have God's love for ourselves. If we don't get that, then we won't show God's love. But if we do... If we recognize, as we sang in our, our second song, that the only reason we can love God is because God has loved us, then it's easy for us to pass that on to other people, even ones who seem maybe a little harder to love. Remember last week, uh, we were looking at the Lord's Prayer, and, and one of the lines in the Lord's Prayer is, forgive me as I have forgiven others. I think it's sort of the same thing here, the same sort of analogy. God, love me and let me love others with the same sort of love. 
Jesus is teaching us here that a genuine love for God must express itself in a genuine love for neighbor. The Apostle John also wrote in 1 John 4, 21 and 22, If anyone says, I love God, we just read this. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother, whom he can see when... Sorry. He is a liar, for he he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him, from Jesus. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So again, as we wrap up, come to a close. God cannot be loved apart from loving our neighbor, and our neighbor cannot be loved apart from us loving God. These are two pegs nailed into the same wall of God's word, and these two pegs are nailed in side by side. They're the most important things. And these two pegs are the same things, the the two things that ought to be nailed on the heart of every single Christian, every single follower of Jesus. And so, my last last words love god and love people because everything else hangs on that let's pray god this morning i pray that you would have taken a familiar text perhaps a familiar text and opened it up in a new way in our heart god a, a simple phrase like love god and love people can become just something we say, something we sign our emails with, hypothetically, something that's just part of our every single day life. But God, may these words, may the great commandment not ever be something that we just gloss over without thinking, man, God, we love you because you have loved us so much. And God, we, we, we want to love people to show them that same love that you have poured on us, that you have lavished on us. God, this morning, even right now, I pray that you would reveal to each of us in this room, in our hearts, where we are failing at these things. God, show me where I am not loving you, where I am not recognizing how much you have loved me. God, show me where I'm being unloving to people around me. Search my heart, God, so that I might confess those things and rest in your forgiveness. God, we love you. We want to love others as you do as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people.